Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on the show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. bandwagon here. You might have guessed from the clever episode title that we're going to talk about Joe Rogan today. But we solemnly swear that it won't just be about Rogan. We're only using him as an example of the mess that is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It seems pretty silly at this point to introduce you to Joe Rogan because of how well-known and controversial he is. But in case you are a listener who needs a little context... Joe is a comedian and a TV show host. Um, I, for one, remember Fear Factor and putting people in a cockroach tube. Um, He started podcasting way back in 2009 when the medium was brand new. Now, 13 years later, the Joe Rogan Experience is the number one listened to podcast in the entire world. His show centers around conversations with various people who have various viewpoints and who come from every walk of life. Some episodes last more than five hours. He and his guests will drink, do drugs, talk, and smoke cigar for hours while discussing life and hardships and aliens and some of the most outrageous theories that humanity can possibly imagine. So I, Savannah, listen to episodes of people I find interesting, which means absolutely zero of any of the MMA people he interviews. I'll catch <laughs> I'll catch uh, scientists and writers and maybe a military person or a musician. Um, the military, I'm sorry, <laughs> the music streaming service Spotify brought, bought exclusive rights to the Joe Rogan experience in May of 2020, which means they get f- full episodes and they can only be streamed from Spotify. Uh, some clips of his show can be found on YouTube still, and they, um, his YouTube channel has over 100 million subscribers. So Joe will talk to anyone about literally anything, and it's gotten him into some hot water for years. Recently, he's been hitting the headlines because of two particular interviews regarding COVID. He interviewed Dr. Robert Malone, who helped invent the mRNA vaccine patents, and Dr. Peter McCall. He's a cardiologist who speaks to state and federal committees about the COVID. And because of the stuff that was discussed in these episodes, there's an uprising of artists who remove their music from Spotify in protest of Joe Rogan's platform. So I listened to about uh, two hours combined of those two interviews. And honestly, there's nothing glaringly jarring or surprising, especially after the news cycles that COVID has been going under. Um, and especially compared um, to some of the insanity that's been discussed in the past on the pro- uh, on the podcast, 
Um, like he talks about religion and the burning bush and how that's, you know, drug related and all sorts of stuff. So um, on the podcast, Joe will ask questions and try to get the people he is interviewing to flesh out their ideas, some of which should be discounted as conspiracy. And it would be if Joe insisted on peer reviewed discourse, but he doesn't. Uh, so Neil Young, a uh, singer from the 60s and somebody who's probably wildly popular with the generation before all of us. And not ours, exactly. Um, what? Speak he for pulled, I mean, <laughs> okay, one out of a representative sample size of one is not, <laughs> is not representative. Um, I would say Neil Young's pool with anybody our age and younger is probably not near as much as with people like twice our age. Um, <laughs> or, fair. yeah, I hate That's to put fair. it that way. Anyway, he was... A singer of the 60s, if you aren't aware from him, he has some music that I am almost positive everybody listening to this has heard at some point or another. Um, He pulled his music from Spotify, telling his management team, I'm doing this because Spotify is spreading fake information about vaccines, potentially causing death to those who believe the disinformation being spread by them. He wrote, please act on this immediately today and keep me informed of the time schedule. I want you to let Spotify know immediately today that I want all my music off their platform. He continued, they can have Joe Rogan or Young, not both. That isn't very rocking in the free world of Neil. (laughs) (laughs) Joni Mitchell uh, stated similar concerns and threatened to remove her music unless Spotify removed the Joe Rogan experience as well. Uh, But her music is still there, or was at least as of February 9th. And Brene Brown, known for her TED Talks on vulnerability and trust, paused her Spotify podcast while she spoke to Spotify about her concerns on misinformation and how Spotify will handle it. Right. Uh, Joe Rogan also, as part of of this whole uh, re-examination of his presence online, released a nine-minute video on January 30th apologizing for offending anyone and uh, saying that he's willing to have disclaimers on his episodes that include touchy topics, um, and he is willing to encourage people to speak with experts. So, side note, according to our Death of Expertise episode, the two doctors who were a part of these controversial episodes would be considered experts in their field. One even said, that isn't my arena, so I don't know, when asked about masks and COVID, and then continued to talk about mask efficacy, right? So, um, just, just a note that just because someone is an expert doesn't mean they're right. It just means that they uh, have the experience and credibility to potentially discuss a topic. I want to address the elephant in the room. Not really. I've, I don't know how much I've done it on this podcast, but I've kind of knocked Joe Rogan, uh, at least among my friends, uh, a considerable amount because I think that his podcast, the Joe Rogan experience is actually doing a disservice to uh, intellectualism and actual genuinely curious discourse um, because Joe Rogan has sort of become this this symbol um, for free thinkers, right? Uh, Joe Rogan doesn't adhere to the, the mainstream line. He has these controversial people on his show. And 
I actually do like that part about Joe Rogan. I like that he has these controversial people on his show. Um, people like Alex Jones, people like uh, Jordan Peterson, um, Elon Musk. Just there are there's well over a thousand episodes. There's almost I think we're closer to 2000 episodes at this point than a thousand. Um, and any person with that much conversation is going to be, I think, better suited to think about the world and, and comprehend different viewpoints, but they have to have those conversations with a modicum of not distrust, but with, um, incredulity. And my problem with Joe Rogan and the podcast specifically is that he takes this idea of talking to everybody and experiencing their thoughts to an extreme that is unhealthy. Um, this goes back to a couple of conversations that we've had on this podcast. The, the first one that pops to mind is um, the, the tolerance paradox. So Joe Rogan is, generally speaking, um, tolerant in that he allows ideas to be expressed on his podcast um, without much pushback or challenge. On occasion, he does, but by and large, it is a a freeform conversation that allows somebody to express their ideas without any inhibition. And that sounds good on the surface, but it means that we end up with people saying some pretty objectively terrible things and never being challenged on it. And when you have an audience the size of Joe Rogan, and when you have the, the gravitas that that brings with it, that means that a certain subset of your audience, probably a large subset of them, is going to going <laughs> latch on to ideas and think them as gospel. Sort of. More like they're going to ascribe every idea that is presented on your show as equally as relevant, as yeah. equally as well thought out, as equally as supported. Mm -hmm. And if you don't push back on any of it, that is going to cause trouble. The important thing for what I'm pointing out here is the, this tolerance paradox. If you have people ex expressing intolerant ideas, which he has had multiple times, uh, Jordan Peterson being one of them, if you don't push back on them, intolerant ideas do not coexist with tolerance. If we are going to be a tolerant society, if Joe Rogan is going to have this tolerant podcast where he allows controversial ideas on, if he doesn't, if he doesn't reject intolerant ideas, if he isn't intolerant of intolerance, then he is allowing intolerance to spread because intolerance in our culture operates like cancer in the body. You can't ignore it because it just grows and it grows whether or not you are paying attention to it or not. You must be actively intolerant of intolerance if you want to have a tolerant society. That's why it's a paradox. And every time he allows somebody on his episodes to spew these ideas that are not worthy of being considered, that are not academically rigorous, that are not scientifically supported, then 
he is allowing this sort of intolerance, this sort of cancer of anti-intellectualism, like we discussed last week, to spread. And that actively makes the problem worse because of the nature of how his show is viewed, which is it is very popular. And therefore, because it is popular and because a lot of people listen to it, these ideas that are presented are all valid or relatively equally valid. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's no context. Like whenever you present this kind of five hours of someone just saying things, talking about whatever, I feel like his show does a disservice by not giving context to the conversation before, after, during. There's nothing that the average user can can use to can latch on to to help them parse through what they're hearing and what might be tolerant or intolerant, what might be okay, what might be factual, what might be opinion. There's there's no cues that the average listener can pick up on to help them determine where the truth or the accuracy or the experience might be. And that context is so important for how we process information and how we learn and how we decide what is and isn't true, right or good. Like there's nothing to give us that that perspective. Okay, but is it Joe Rogan's responsibility as a content creator to give context to the the average listener? He has stated multiple times that he is there for conversations and to talk to people. And a lot of the stuff is is bullshit, his words. And it's, I, I don't know, I feel like someone who is providing a content that's entertainment-based, not fact-based, and he never claims to be fact-based, um, is that necessarily his responsibility? I would say that there is a slight responsibility with that large of a, an audience to, you know, uh, similar to Trump with um, the platform that he had with the January 6th riots, people are talking about like whether it was his responsibility. I think Joe Rogan has a, a small amount of responsibility, but is it necessarily his responsibility to, you know, make sure that the majority of his users understand the context for all of the conversations? I mean, I guess if if we are going to and and I'm I'm saying this we as in as in us collectively as like a I guess a podcast, right? We've we've knocked on Tucker Carlson for the exact same thing. How are you going to get on a news platform and then present entertainment content and not expect your viewers to contextualize what you're saying as news? Again, he doesn't have a legal responsibility. That's kind of what we're we're talking about here. Like he he does not have that legal responsibility. One of the reasons that I don't support the show, I don't listen to the show is because he does not take that responsibility on himself and I don't support that. So, I guess information capitalism here, right? Like I am not supporting with my attention a show that refuses to give that kind of context that I feel is important. I think he's more not of an that inter- he needs me. I think he's more <laughs> of an entertainer than any sort of news caster. Um, and I don't know. I I feel like I'm on the other end of the fence with you guys. I I do listen to the show and I do um, think that some of the conversations are like I go through and hear some good points and hear some crazy points and I'm like that's weird. But you know, I I sit there and I'm able to take what I can from it. Um, but I don't view him as a news source. So 
I think this comes down to a dichotomy between what the expectation is that that Joe Rogan has for himself and the reality of the world that we live in. Um, and Joe Rogan might not consider himself a news platform. Joe Rogan might not consider himself a person who brings factual information to the table. But the reality of the situation is the people that listen to him, a large portion of those people do view him that way. And that starts because, as you said, sometimes you listen to people and they have great information and great points and they're compelling. And sometimes you listen to an episode and the people are making just crazy claims and you're like, wow, that's weird. The problem and the reality we live in is that it's not always so clear cut. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the people are saying something that sounds reasonable, that's absolute bullshit. And sometimes they're saying something that sounds absolutely crazy, but it's actually true. And the average listener is not equipped with the tools to distinguish between what sounds reasonable but is bullshit and what sounds crazy but is true. And so we end up with a population that rejects things that are uh, that should be accepted that are considerable, that have support behind them, and that accepts things that are absolutely crazy. And even though Joe Rogan does not want to assume that responsibility of curating his content and doing research and and gatekeeping, for lack of a better term, what is let out into the world from his show, um, he has that responsibility. Where's this personal and responsibility of the listeners, though? I think there is responsibility on both ends. Right. Everybody should do their part, but you can't put the onus of responsibility completely on one person or one party in this. That's unfair. And to say, well, the listeners should do their research. No, not that they is should do their research. Every bit as unfair as saying Joe Rogan should only make sure that facts get off of his show. Joe Rogan should make a good faith attempt to to challenge controversial ideas on his show, to um, make sure that when something that is utterly bananas is being foisted as truth on his show, that he pushes back on that, that he challenges that. And if he challenges that and he leads to a real conversation with real counterpoints and real Con, uh, uh, contrasting opinions that the read or that the listener can then consume and use to form a more fleshed out opinion, then I would argue that is a huge step. But th- that is great. That's not what he wants to do, and that's he he's there to have conversations. And that's that's basically my second point, and one of the main reasons that I don't listen to it is Joe Rogan. And this is going to come off as incredibly mean, but he is too immature to have the power that he has. I don't think he's very intelligent, if, for sure. Um, if you hear some of the the stuff that he says, it's... Right. I mean, I don't want to get into his intelligence. I think that is a, a fraught conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is definitely immature. And that might sound controversial to people as well. But the fact of the matter is, even if he doesn't want to do that thing with his show... He has a huge amount of power now. Mm -hmm. And Spider-Man has taught us all that with great power comes great responsibility. And that's not, I mean, that might sound like a pithy statement, but it's also not untrue. I had um, 
a conversation that I had with someone who had not read Atlas Shrugged, but I had just finished and um, they were ranting about Anne Ran about how awful her ideas were and how she created this movement of people that were, you know, took capitalism to the extreme and everything. And I was talking about Atlas Shrugged and how the ideas were actually really amazing to me. And, um, but I did notice that she had neglected to bring up stuff about the elderly or children or the disabled. And, um, and the person that I was talking with was like, is that not her responsibility to like, you know, flesh out about that. And I'm like, no, she was writing a book. Like who said it was her responsibility to um, lay down the groundwork of all of our society. Like she was just writing a book about how anyway. So it was just, I think it's, it's a lot to ask for one person to do um, all of that. He does have a responsibility, but. Yeah. And without getting too far into social contract theory and and the responsibility that we all carry for the well-being of the people around us, like, at some point, we have to start to consider where shows like Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson come into play in the greater ecosystem in which we live. Because in a bubble, no, Joe Rogan has zero responsibility. He absolutely does not have to make sure that there's context. He does not have to challenge controversial ideas. He does not have to fact check anything. He legally at this point does not have to, although I can foresee a situation where someone takes some sort of radical criminal action based on something that they hear on that podcast, and then he is opening himself up to liability. But that's a different conversation. But if we if we want to live in a society, in a community where we all function well together, then people who don't have a legal responsibility, a mandate to take on some of this need to take the initiative for themselves. We all have to consider what role we want to play in society and how we want society to work. And as a part of the social contract, like John was saying, when you have a following this big, you need to consider whether or not you have some responsibility for how your presence impacts the overall. And that's, that's kind of where I fall on this. He legally... There is no mandate. He does not have to do any of this stuff. Do I wish he would? Yes. Yeah. And I would say there's a huge difference between what he did and what Anne Rand did because uh, Rand didn't know how many people were going to read her book. Rand also didn't have a relatively unlimited format in which to explore her ideas. She had a book. And because it took off and because it was wildly popular, it has created some aspects of our society that might not be great. It has created some aspects of our society that might be super beneficial, but that's not exactly her fault or her responsibility because she could not predict that, okay, 11 million people are going to buy my book. Now, if she wrote Atlas Shrugged 2, Super Shrug Boogaloo or whatever, then she might be more... uh ethically responsible, right. <laughs> knowing that she has a, a, a wide audience, right, to, to state her ideas more explicitly or to hew a little closer to um, certain aspects so that she doesn't accidentally create uh, uh, an impression somewhere else that it wasn't what she intended. Does that make sense? Like she 
the first time, like Joe Rogan's first episode, if he just wanted to go and bullshit, fine. He like 10 people listened or something, but he's like episode 1500 or something. Now things have changed. Yeah. It just seems like we're trying to take into consideration ethical um, impacts of free thought and free speech. And that, like, I don't know, that seems to be a, a fuzzy line with them. Um, where we choose to take our our thoughts and our expressions as entertainers and as artists and as writers. I mean, the ethical and moral uh, impact of free speech is a fuzzy conversation. That's why we right. have the conversation at all ever. It's all and fuzzy. We've, we've never really held freedom of speech to be so sacrosanct that you are free of responsibility for what you said. Oh, no, I don't. I don't think like you are free from you have free speech. You're not free from the consequences. Right. So be personal. He can say whatever he wants, but, you know, he needs to he, he there will be consequences. And right now, one of the consequences is people are asking him to be more considerate about the reach that he has and to do something that he doesn't want to do, which is research and push back on things. And dude, who wants to research? We do it every week. I'm on week two and I'm exhausted. Like, I don't know how you guys do this. Oh dude, it is my favorite. Like the whole recording (laughs) part, that's just what it is. The research is where it's at for me, but I'm a complete nerd. Well, and that's the thing we're, we're at this point where there could be potential consequences and Yet again, Joe Rogan's podcast has brought to the forefront of the conversation what sort of legal boundaries there might be that coincide with this moral and ethical responsibility. Mm. And and the, the conversation is not around what the boundaries might be for Joe Rogan himself yet, but it is around what those boundaries might be like for Spotify, which is, you know, hosting exclusively his podcast. Yeah. What a good segue into Section 230. Thanks. I'm a professional segueer. That's my job. She's so good. All right. So the internet is gigantic, y'all. Like I've spent 14 years building the internet. Um, so I have a lot of experience with it. And it's created and maintained by people who get stuff wrong. Um, Joe Rogan included. Uh, <laughs> um, especially in the field of science, which is rapidly evolving. Like um, at work, I can't even keep our SharePoint up to date with all the documents that change. And um, it is a colossal shit show all the time. Anyway, um, so how can we expect the Internet, which the majority of the world touches and changes and impacts as science is evolving? Like, how do we keep it all uh, correct? So what happens with when someone like Joe, who's got a large platform, allows conversations with random people and experts to be broadcast to millions of listeners who don't have the time or skills to fact check every statement in Joe's three plus hour long interviews? Because he does he releases about like four to six a week, which is a lot of talking. So I'm not going to rant it's about like this it's a job. <laughs> it's almost like he gets paid. Like it's ridiculous speaking of this is a good time heard, to get a sponsor if a anyone podcast. wants to sponsor yeah. our podcast we would like to be paid for this it'd be super cool <laughs> but also we're really really picky so yep best man best behavior anyway um so 1996 huh 1996 good year good year everybody remember it i vaguely do i, I think had absolutely a great summer. do happy eighth grade year 
to me. Yeah. It was a big year for telecommunications, uh, which we were all very aware of when we were very young, um, to include something called the Communications Decency Act of 1996, well before Savannah's rural Georgia (laughs) or my rural Missouri or, oh, well, where were you in 96? Were you Um, in inner city St. Paul? Yeah. Okay. We also didn't have the internet. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure people did, but we didn't. Yeah. People were using, I think, those those AOL CDs when we didn't hang them up to be, um, you know, bird scarer offers, (laughs) for lack of a better term, scare discs. What? Oh, yeah. Did you never do that? It works for flies, too. Because I like birds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have berry bushes, though. Like you don't want the birds eating your berries, so you you hang the discs up around your garden or around your berry bush, and it you know it also apparently helped keep bugs away. But I didn't I don't know. Yeah. Um, we're getting guys. We're getting real real rural. Real <laughs> quick Welcome to here. the <laughs> like, We just had too many berries, so we didn't mind the birds yeah. coming around anyway. <laughs> we we were very jealous of our mulberry bush. Uh, we 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 guarded it very With aggressively. CDs. All right. Uh, um, anyway, anyway, <laughs> so around this time, um, Democratic Senators James Exon and Tim Johnson introduced identical bills to Congress in 1995, and it was the first time since the Communications Act of 1934, which was definitely before the internet, mm-hmm. that communications law had been touched, which is insane. Insane, because information sharing across telecommunication lines had been a thing since ARPANET in the 60s which was basically a computer network that allowed DOD colleagues to discuss things with each other's proto-internet. The proto-internet. And colleges. Colleges in the DOD network. Oh, yeah, that's right. Research institutions. Yeah. Yeah. The Communications Decency Act of 1996 included sections 8 and 9, which gave cable operators the ability to refuse to carry obscenity or indecency or nudity. Uh, But then... The Communications Decency Act was rolled into the Telecommunications Act of 1996 under Section 230 after multiple senators tried to block the CDA as it was worded. Because like we've talked about many times before, legislation and how it's worded can be just a big old cluster cuss. In 1997, the CDA was determined to be unconstitutional. The case was Reno versus the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, because it infringed upon free speech, and that was a whole conversation about the morality and the impacts of free speech. Uh, but the act in the end was worded too vaguely to be enforceable constitutionally, because who gets to decide what indecency is? Look, if male nipples are allowed on Instagram, female nipples should be allowed to be on Instagram as well. That's all I'm saying. Free the booby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how does Section 230 fit into this legal spaghetti junction? Because I I went through like all the different links and all the different .gov things and I was getting lost real quick. But anyway, um, so the Internet's this giant sprawling mess of equipment and connections given to us by Internet service providers, also known as ISPs, um, like Verizon and Cox or Spectrum or Mediacom um, or Google. (laughs) Evidently, there's some I don't know what that is. So uh, there's some strong. Okay. No, Mediacom. Mediacom. Oh, it's they're a cable and internet provider. Listen, you 
are not allowed to be a sponsor of MediaCom. You're not. Yeah. I've never even heard of Sorry. them, so they're clearly not important. Um, <laughs> so there is Google um, also, if you are lucky enough to have Google, Google Fiber. Um, but they allow platforms such as Instagram and YouTube to provide content to the masses. So whose responsibility is it to monitor what is said on the Internet? Um, Section 230 of U.S. Code Title 47 protects what are called interactive computer services, which is like Spotify, Instagram, and YouTube, from the responsibility of what is said or done on their portion of the Internet. They are not considered publishers under Section 230. Um, Publishers are responsible for the content that they publish. Uh, Section 230 says that these... um, Interactive computer services are not publishers because they're providing a platform. They are not publishing. Which probably sounds a little confusing to the average user because without YouTube, people would not be able to access the mesmerizing content of Hand Tool Rescue, which seriously, I don't know why I love his stuff so much, but it is highly entertaining. Shout out to that guy. He doesn't even know who we are. Or feel like... If, if, yeah, if, if Evaporust wants to sponsor us, that is cool. Um, or, or feel Colum McGinnis. It is Colum, by the way, not Colm. Colum. Colum McGinnis. We called him Colm McGinnis several episodes ago. Uh, you won't be able to feel him like stare into your soul as he sings a, a, a earth-shattering rendition of a future sci-fi space pirate shanty, which is a thing. Isn't YouTube therefore publishing these videos? They are making sure that people can see it. So no, YouTube merely provides an interface for us, the user, to access the video maker's content. YouTube itself isn't making that content or curating it. So to me, it's easiest to distinguish between a platform and a publisher by thinking about a brick and mortar bookstore. So when you walk into a bookstore and look around at all of the books, you aren't looking at the product that the bookstore itself made. The bookstore merely acquires and then resells these books. It doesn't physically create the book. It doesn't decide what content goes into the book. The publisher is the one who does that. The publishers are the companies who provide the money and the resources to take the author's words and then put them into a refined format for the end consumer. This means that in the bookstore's case, nope, this means that the bookstore in this case is the real world equivalent of a platform. The books themselves are provided by the publisher. Usually, publishers are considered to have editorial judgment, while a platform just doesn't. So when you think of things in this light, you think of like the Harvard Business Review or the Atlantic or the New York Times. They are publishers. They present curated content in which editors have invested a lot of time and energy, whereas Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, these are just classic platforms. They merely distribute other people's work or other people's content without much editorial oversight beyond, I think, what is legally required to make sure that they are not like publishing really objectively offensive things. Right. And um, side note, the people who write, um, writers and the people with the ideas who have a contract with a publisher, typically have to sign a contract stating that um, they are taking their own words and they're their own, like part of my contract um, goes into like, yes, they are working on this and they're editing it, but still they are independent. My publisher is independent of what I am writing. 
Mm-hmm. So even um, mm-hmm. myself as a the writer, it's it. There's a contract, a legal contract in place between the publisher and the writer, um, and then the publishers and the platforms uh, like bookstores that are selling. So it gets very nuanced. So it's like the the writing equivalent of the. Uh, that disclaimer you see all the time, like the opinions in ex- uh, expressed yep. in this interview are uh, belong to, you know, whoever made them and are not the opinions of Time Warner uh, explicitly yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Or like, uh, you know. if you create social media policy for your company, you make your employees put that on their social media platforms if you are in a sensitive industry. Yep. So mm-hmm. these are my opinions and don't reflect the opinions of my employer. Yeah. Same yep. thing. I was actually surprised my publisher wanted to publish my book because of the stuff that I talk about. And yeah, no, it's in the, it's in the contract. They are, they're protected. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, Oh, we don't care. (laughs) All right. Um, there's no rule that says a publisher can't also be a platform or a platform can't also be a publisher. Um, if you go back to the example about the bookstore, consider Barnes & Noble. They're both a brick-and-mortar bookstore as well as a publisher. Um, they publish art- authors that are signed with them under the Barnes & Noble brand called Barnes & Noble Press. It is no surprise that publishers and platforms began to emerge online as well. Um, in 2014, Jonathan Glick created the term platisher to describe hybrids that functioned as both a platform and a publisher. Uh, these platishers are more common than you might initially think. So, for example, you might have heard of the website Medium. It is a platisher that raised $25 million in 2014 uh, for its services. The company functioned by commissioning edited articles on specific themes while simultaneously allowing the general public to submit their own writing on Medium. The company enjoyed re- like great success early on because they were paying talented writers and editors to develop these sort of individually branded collections of articles, like museum uh, displays on a theme, basically. In its early days, Medium also created an aspect of of this gatekeeping sense, right? Um, Because it forced users to apply for accounts in order to read the article. So this sort of lent an aura of authority to their content, um, but it also allowed them to control what was published on their platform. So while they were a hybrid publisher and platform, they were leaning very heavily into the publishing side of things. But Medium also serves as a great example of how difficult it is to be both a publisher and a platform at the same time. As Medium grew and began to expand their business, they also lowered the standards for what was accepted for publication on the website. And this led to a glut of writing that was very difficult to moderate appropriately, or at least to the standard that Medium had set previously. So they constantly had to change and readjust their business model. By 2019, a Neiman Lab article that chronicled Medium's first seven years described the site as having undergone countless pivots. So it had become an endless thought experiment into what publishing on the internet could look like. Which makes sense because the internet constantly morphs and changes and it will forever as we share all this information. So a a lot of thought has to go into how we're going to manage the legality and the ethical and moral dilemmas of such a large information sharing source. Right. In a lot of ways, the internet is the sort of, um, I don't know, proto society in which our social interactions um, and what is acceptable emerges, right? 
things happen on the internet, I would say faster than they happen, quote unquote, in real life. Mm -hmm. So the way people interact online sort of becomes the way people interact in real life. Now, the way people interact in real life also informs how people interact online. But the cooking pot, the way I see it and the way I've experienced it is the internet is what forms our culture, how we begin to discuss what is acceptable and what we want as a society, a global society. And then that informs what we push for in real life and and changes that. Yeah. Um, so it's this constant conversation, this constant negotiation between do we want this? No, we want that. This is acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. That used to be acceptable. And now we're just like, oh, wait, I know better. Yeah. It's so. a social sandbox, essentially. Yep. And you've got platforms like Instagram, like Facebook, that are at the forefront of this determination as to how we're going to experience each other in real life because of how we experience each other on the internet. You've got people like Instagram who are making all of these different changes out of a sense of social responsibility. Again, no legal mandate, social and ethical responsibility to curb bullying online or change the way teenagers might experience their platform or shape the way that we experience information and misinformation. Those things are all happening in the sandbox that is the internet on these platforms because they're not considered publishers and because they have that freedom of movement to play around with what their responsibility might look like. Which is what brings us to Spotify and Joe Rogan. Spotify is trying to straddle that divide between platform and publisher. For most of their content, Spotify is just one of many platforms. It is for our show, but for Rogan, it's contractually his only platform. This arrangement positions Spotify in a unique way because they're capable of acting as Joe Rogan's de facto publisher. They can have a say in what's created, but they've been resisting and this upsets people, which is not super surprising because Joe Rogan is an information content provider and he creates content that pisses people off. Now, <laughs> hmm, true. Now there's something we haven't mentioned yet that is pretty key to Section 230. It, it doesn't provide blanket liability protection. Section 230 does not provide blanket liability protection. Platforms can still be held liable for allowing content that is blatantly in violation of federal law, allowing intellectual property violations to remain unchecked, and for electronic privacy violations, among some other more technical limitations. The ire over how Spotify is or isn't handling shows like Joe Rogan and their apparent ability to have their cake and eat it too has led to renewed discussions about the many proposed modifications to Section 230 that would make these hosting platforms more accountable for the content they allow to be published. But as with many things in the political sphere, this seems to be more of an opportunistic attempt to capitalize on the relevance of the topic in general than it is to genuinely address the proliferation of potentially harmful information at the center of the Rogan issue. Yeah, let us clarify here for a second. The legislation that's currently hogging most of the attention around modifying Section 230 is a revised version of the surprisingly bipartisan Earn It Act, which was first introduced all the way back in January of 2020. 
uh, you know, before the world as we knew it was altered by our sudden need to process and differentiate information, misinformation and disinformation about a novel virus and a global pandemic. Um, the act's most forward face is focused on removing protection for platforms that make it too easy to post and access child sex abuse material, CSAM. And I mean, who can't get behind that, right? I, I don't know anybody who would openly oppose that as an aim. But it turns out that there was and is a lot more to the bill than just protecting children. When it was first brought to the table, Earnit proposed requiring platforms to earn their Section 230 immunity by complying with a set of guidelines established by an unelected committee and modifiable by the Attorney General. But those guidelines wouldn't actually be binding laws through any legislative agency or any rulemaking process. Yeah, it's it's confusing. It also doesn't make much sense. You have to do this or else nothing. Right. Well, and it's well, we'll talk about it here in a second, but yeah. it's like you have to do these things. Otherwise, you don't get this immunity. Right. But, I mean, you don't have to do them on your own. But if you want immunity, you got to do them. Yeah. So on January 31st. Now, remember. Never mind. On January 31st, Senators Lindsey Graham, Richard Blumenthal, and 17 bipartisan co-sponsors reintroduced a version of the legislation. Two days later, the House introduced its own update. And for the most part, the new bill is a reboot. It establishes a commission tasked with developing best practices for websites meant to address all aspects of minors engaged in commercial sex, child sex abuse, and the distribution of CSAM, determining to whom those standards would apply. The commission would be chaired by the attorney general and include 19 members, 11 from, 11 from federal agencies, law enforcement, and tech companies, four survivors of child sexual exploitations or those supporting survivors, and four with civil liberties, privacy, or cybersecurity backgrounds. The best practices would be published in the Federal Register, a journal where government rules, regulations, and notices are posted, but they're not legally binding. Uh, the Earn It Act would also create an exemption from Section 230 protections that makes websites liable when one of their users violates a CSAM law. The site would be subject to both civil and criminal cases using the federal CSAM laws, as well as any cases using state laws, even those that don't exist yet. It also includes updates to the type of information that parties are expected to send to the National Center on Missing and Exploited Children, who handles um, the whole process around these reports, when they're reporting potential instances of CSAM, including location data, email addresses, identifying information about any involved minors. Uh, and then websites would be given broader legal immunity when they send this information over to the NCMEC. I know a lot of acronyms. Sorry, guys. Again, these really don't sound all that objectionable, right? It pretty much has nothing to do with the Rogan topic other than the fact that this latest controversy has people talking about and fundamentally misunderstanding what Section 230 is, means, and does. But it doesn't sound unreasonable. Right. 
But there's another element of this legislation that has a lot of people up in arms, and it's not included in the handy-dandy bill summary that you can find at congress.gov. I'm shocked. Right? Many tech industry professionals, civil, civil liberties activists, and even tech law researchers believe that provisions in the Earn It Act threaten the use of end-to-end -end encryption and pose potential harm to user privacy. They say that it incentivizes platforms to create backdoors for law enforcement or even for the platforms themselves to scan encrypted communications for illegal content or to stop using encryption altogether so that they can avoid liability for the content that might be sent through encrypted communications. Let's take a moment here. In case you're not familiar with how encryption works in this context, here's a dramatic oversimplification. When you Very send a message using, the, using an encrypted platform like Signal or WhatsApp or even the secret chat option in Facebook Messenger, the company sending that message cannot see it or scan it. It's like writing notes in middle school, right? Unencrypted messaging is like writing your note on a piece of paper and then asking the person next to you to hand it to your friend. They might ignore it, glance at it, or read the whole thing while they're passing it. It's up to them, and you can't really control what they do. Encrypted messaging is like writing your note in a locked journal that only you and your friend have the key to. You write your message, you lock the book, and you hand it down. It passes through the carrier, and your friend gets it, and they unlock it and read it, and then maybe repeat the process. The important part is the guy in the middle passing the notebook can't unlock it to read it. So keep that idea in mind as we continue. Right. So the language that's actually in the Earn It Act sounds really innocuous. It outlines that a platform can't be considered liable for child sex abuse material content on their site or through their services solely because it utilizes full end-to-end -end encrypted messaging, device encryption, or other encryption services. The platform doesn't possess the information necessary to decrypt a user's communication or the platform fails to take an action that would otherwise undermine its ability to offer full encryption. But the legislation also says that none of these factors shall be construed to prohibit a court from considering evidence of any of those actions or circumstances that we just described if there is evidence that is otherwise admissible. And I know that that sounds really complicated yeah. and um, that's how legislation works. But in other words, a platform can't be sued in a CSAM case just because it utilizes encryption. That can't be the only piece of evidence brought against it. But if a case with otherwise credible evidence is brought under this provision, the platform's use of encryption can also be considered as evidence of its liability. Right. Basically, like, just because somebody is using uh, this encryption doesn't mean that there's CSAM on the site. But if there right. is and you're using encryption, then you are de facto, I'm using that word again, uh, making it harder to find and prosecute that child sex abuse material. So it uh, puts people, it puts these companies in a sticky place. And here's how that might play out right. in a very, very general non-specific sense. Let's say someone reports a piece of CSAM that they received via Facebook Messenger's end-to-end -end encrypted secret chat option. 
the person who sent that material is absolutely liable under state and federal laws for the content they shared. But under this new provision, Facebook is also liable for that content. Facebook as a company could be named in a civil or criminal case related to that content, and their use of end-to-end -end encryption, their basically their inability to read your message and determine whether or not it contains exploitative content, could be used as evidence that they are not working to stop the dissemination of this kind of content through their networks. Right. Imagine this process being repeated over and over until Facebook as a company has been involved in so many lawsuits that it abandons encryption altogether and opens the door to scanning all messages for content. Now, this is absolutely a worst case scenario. We acknowledge that, and so do the commentators that we're reading. But this legislation would also set a precedent for carving out exemptions to Section 230 based on the legality of the content that users send to each other. It's not unreasonable to think that we would quickly see legislation emerge holding platforms criminally and civilly liable for content that occupies other unprotected categories of speech. Functionally, that kind of legislation would require so much active monitoring that these platforms would have to scan every piece of content uploaded to them, actively monitor all users, and essentially function as an extension of law enforcement. It would put them out of business. Yeah. All right. Enough about earn it. There are also a couple of other pieces of legislation that have been introduced recently that aim to modify Section 230. These weren't introduced in the wake. These were not introduced in the wake of the Rogan situation and deal more with the algorithmic processes that govern the content that's recommended to us. But they are still relevant to this conversation about the social and potentially legal responsibility that platforms have concerning content. In March of 2021, Congress folks Malinowski and Eshoo reintroduced their Protecting Americans from Dangerous Algorithms Act which would amend Section 230 to remove a platform's immunity if its algorithm amplifies or recommends content that leads to a legal case concerning offline interference with civil rights or acts of international terrorism. That legislation would only apply to platforms with more than 10 million monthly users, and companies could still use Section 230 as a defense in these cases if they distribute content using methods that are obvious, understandable, and transparent to a reasonable user, including chronological order, alphabetical order, average user rating rankings, and sorting based on the number of user reviews. The company is also not liable if a user specifically searches for information and an algorithm or other computational process aids in returning search results. So I couldn't search for uh, how to hijack a plane. <laughs> And then, or if I searched for how to hijack a plane, whatever platform I searched on, let's call it Instagram, because that's reasonable, sure, would not be then held liable for returning results using an algorithm uh, that talk about hijacking a plane. Like, right. that's not their fault because I was looking for the information. Yeah. But if I'm just scanning through and it's like, hey, you want to know how to hijack a plane, then they're in trouble. In October 2021... Uh, Representative Frank Pallone Jr. Uh, introduced the Justice Against Malicious Algorithms Act, which lifts the liability shield for platforms that make personalized content recommendations that they know or ought to have known 
materially contributed to a physical or severe emotional injury to any person. The legislation really focuses on that personalized recommendation aspect of algorithms that learns what you do and don't interact with and then serves content based on analysis of those behavior patterns. It wouldn't include recommendations made in direct response to a search query or apply to platforms with fewer than 5 million monthly visitors. It sounds like this is part of the blowback that has been hitting Instagram and, uh, well, primarily Instagram lately, um, where Instagram was promoting content that was uh, specifically making teenagers, especially teenage girls, feel bad about themselves. It was promoting content like, uh, you know, bulimia or anemia, um, praising or glorifying content, things like how to be really skinny, how to be prettier, all of all of these horrible sort of, I don't know, topics that prey mm-hmm. on the insecurities of developing human beings. And especially in a society where we put so much value on the way that a, fe- a female, <laughs> a woman looks, um, it really impacts Uh, young women who haven't yet solidified their own identities. And so this happened like, it feels like an eternity ago now, but I, uh, I think about a year ago, Instagram and Facebook were really in the hot seat over, um, over how bad it was. I remember a Congress, Congress person, I can't remember which one made a fake account pretending to be a, um, a teenage girl, which sounds bad off the top right there, but, um, (laughs) but like it was within a matter of a couple hours, the algorithm was already pushing content about, uh, how to lose weight and, um, glorifying bulimia and, and, and using these key phrases to kind Mm -hmm. of escape the, the, the explicit censorship of these things, not censorship. That's censor has such a negative context, the the explicit removal of that content from society so it doesn't hurt people um although i still like i i don't know if the the phrasing that is that is given here know or ought to have known um i don't know if that phrasing is going to make it through uh, to the final bill because ought to have known what you should have done laws like that are very very broad very broad yeah and that's That's something that I noticed looking at all of these potential modifications to Section 230 is that a lot of them include language like that, um, or like we were just talking about in the last one, a reasonable user, right? The reasonable person standard that causes so much trouble when we're trying to interpret legislation and laws and how they're applied. It just gets to be so incredibly broad that you open up these companies to incredible liability and make it so much harder for them to operate that you will end up making them you you essentially end up limiting the scope of section 230 so much that it doesn't doesn't actually matter in july of 2021 amy klobuchar and ben luhan introduced the health and misinformation act of 2021 what could this be about i know right (laughs) That bill would create an exception to Section 230 protections for platforms whose algorithms promote health misinformation 
through their content recommendations. The bill would not apply to platforms that use neutral algorithms to deliver content, like ordering the content chronologically, and would remain in effect for the remainder of our current public health emergency. This one has a slightly limited scope, um, but that's not to say that it, it couldn't be expanded, you know. Um, yeah. And guidance on, on what is and what isn't misinformation would come from the Secretary of Health and Human Services and would have to be issued within 30 days of the bill's enactment. Oof. What a homework assignment that would be if it passed. I'm glad Dude, it I would be terrible. Be, that, would be a, that would be a long 30 days, and I guarantee they would use every single minute of it. Oof. Right. Yeah. And these these last three bills that we talked about um, are still like they've been referred to committee. They're still discussing them. Yeah. Most pieces of legislation like this are performative and die in committee anyway. But they're they're on the table. Yeah. And if people feel particularly motivated at this point in time, spurred on by the Joe Rogan situation or any other situation that may or may not arise. And we do have midterm elections coming up. People seem to be a little bit more motivated to uh, get some of this stuff accomplished. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's also just real quick, there's other uh, bills. You got Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, bleh, and Martha Blackburn's attempt to completely repeal Section 230 altogether. Um, yeah, no, they, they totally wrote a bill that's like, yeah, we think we should just ditch it. Yeah, basically, it would make... Uh, the platform's liable for all of the content that is on them, mm -hmm. but it would also make them liable if a person felt like their content was removed. Basically, um, oh. they would be required to essentially uphold First Amendment protections from for okay. users, but also they could be held liable for what the users put yeah, onto I feel the platform. Like I, I can I can see the the thought process behind a couple of Republicans uh, supporting a bill like that because they're like supporting freedom of speech, but like many of the political maneuvers that the right wing has taken in the past couple of years, I feel like they didn't think it all the way through, mm -hmm. because I feel like whereas the uh, the individual podcaster or host or content provider like Tucker Carlson might uh, be like, well, now Section 230 is gone and I am protesting because YouTube took down my video because it didn't meet their standards and that's that violates my First Amendment rights. Um, yeah, that might happen, but I guarantee like a thousand times more lawsuits will happen going after people for right. saying things that they feel the person suing feels is harmful. Um, I'm not saying all of those cases would be like legitimate. I'm sure many of them would be frivolous, but holy cow, the can of worms right. that would open up. Oof. And then that's, I mean, this isn't even a complete list of the legislation that would amend, repeal, or limit the scope of Section 230. These are just some of the most recent. So it's- right an evolving conversation and we honestly do not have the time to cover it all in one day. This is no, a in the, primer. It, the, there's a slate article that we pulled some of these from it's listed in the show notes and it, it is put together by a bunch of, I think it's Yale law students. I mean, it's a tracker and they update it every time there is a piece of legislation that would amend or limit the scope of or modify section 230. And it's just chronological newest at the top. And it's really interesting to go through and look and see all of the different ways 
that the legislation could be impacted and just how incredibly bipartisan this issue is. Um, there are people on all sides of the aisle who have found common ground in their dislike of Section 230. Yeah. Uh, President Biden and and the Biden administration is not exempt from that. He has openly discussed how he feels about Section 230 yeah. in the same way that President Trump and, and uh, William Barr talked about it, right? It's not, nobody seems to like 230. Everybody seems to want to modify it heavily. Yeah, but I feel like it wants like I feel like those are moving in opposite directions based on, you know, who which side you associate with, right? Yeah, it really depends. Earn it is one of the things that has has earned very significant bipartisan support. Um and this idea of limiting the use of encryption, especially on these kinds of platforms, also has very very significant bipartisan report uh support. There's an aspect of information technology security that needs to go into play also because it would be very easy, quote unquote, for someone to hack into a publisher or a platform and actually uh, change what gets put out there. So mm -hmm. there's the onus of security of the for the platforms to have make sure that that doesn't happen. But that's a whole yeah. nother like, yeah, d very deep conversation. Security when it comes to Section 230, is something that we could probably spend a whole other episode talking about, and I wish we had the time to do that. But we don't, because we are right up against that that hour. We're, we're over again. Sorry, but there's three of us, and we just like to talk. That's just what it is. If you like to talk, if you like to talk, that's right, to us, uh, you can do so at firesidebreakdowns.com. You can find our shows, our podcasts, and our social media links there. The most important thing that you can do, however, is leave us a review. You can find out how to do that on the website, in our show notes, or directly in Spotify, where we still host our podcast. Please, it's the most important thing for us. Now, let's get to some good news. Nice. Good news. One place that we tend to see Black people underrepresented is in the field of information technology. So for our second Black History Month Good News segment, we're going to tell you a bit about Alan Emtage, who is basically the reason we are able to do this podcast in the first place at all. In 1989, before Google was a company and Googling became a verb, Alan created Archie, the first internet search engine. He was a grad student at McGill University in Montreal, and he was working as a systems administrator in the university's IT department. He was tasked with finding software for students and faculty, which at the time meant crawling through the various FTP servers that made up the internet back then. To save himself some time, he wrote some code to do the looking around for him. An article from 1994 described Archie this way. Archie, referred to as the Electronic Index to the Internet, is a collection of discovery tools that electronically search directories of computers on the Internet. Archie can search an estimated 2.1 million files located at over 1,200 sites worldwide within minutes. Given a title or subject, Archie will search the Internet and report the location of files containing information matching the keyword. Archie is particularly powerful in locating public domain software available to science educators. Because the number of files expands daily, Archie databases are updated internationally about once a month. Wow. 
I know, right? That's incredible. I mean, from the part where it's talking about 2.1 million fi- files at over 12,000 mm-hmm. sites in minutes, in minutes, which sounds incredible right? until you like think about how far we've come since then where we're searching billions of files at hundreds of thousands of locations, if not more, in seconds, right. in 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 fractions of a second. Yeah, my Google results come back to me with like 1.3 million results in 0.287 seconds. Yeah. Uh, and this, like, it's important to remember, you know, from way back that when we say 1,200 sites, that's like literally individual servers in different parts of the globe. Yeah. 1,200 individual machines that it's it's looking it's at within for. minutes. This, this is And incredible. then it doesn't give you a link. It tells you, it gives you the location. So it yeah. would basically return a result that says, oh, it's on this FTP server yeah. over here. And then you would still have to go and find it, right? Wow. <laughs> I mean, this that's incredibly cool technology, though. Like, that is super cool. It's blowing me away. Yeah. Like, he was just like, oh, I'm tired of searching through all these sites. Let me just write some code. And now... Of course, we pull out our pocket computers and we hit the Googs to remind us of the word that we can't think of or to help us research a podcast or to tell us movie showtimes. And it's all thanks to Alan. Thank you so much, Alan. You have made my life. Thanks, Alan. Immeasurably better. Immeasurably better. Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month, Alan. And happy Monday and Tuesday and whenever what day. You are listening to this podcast until next Monday when we'll be back at you with a whole other episode of who knows what take care of each other.